and my little cubicle in Bennett Hall, to the beleaguered island of us, our collective endeavor to make sense of the treacherous currents that had brought us to an Ivy League university, and also threatened daily to wipe out the small footholds and handholds we fashioned to survive there. To cut one part of a long story short, by the next day, I changed my mind, and I did teach a black literature course the following semester. No white people in my office on that spring day in 1968. On the other hand, visualizing the presence of some sweaty, ham-fisted, Caucasian version of John Henry, the steel-driving man, hammering iron wedges between the students and me, incarcerating us behind bars as invisible as he was, clarifies the encounter. Why weren't novels and poems by Americans of African descent being taught at the university? Why were so few of us attending and almost none of us teaching there? What rationales and agendas were served by dispensing knowledge through arbitrary territorial fields? Why had the training I'd received in the so-called best schools alienated me from my particular cultural roots and brainwashed me into believing in some objective, universal, standard brand of culture and art, essentialist, hierarchical classifications of knowledge that doomed people like me to marginality on the campus, and worse, consigned the vast majority of us who never reach college to a stigmatized surplus underclass. Yes, unpacking the issues above would surely be a long story, one I've undertaken to tell in 30 years of fiction and essay. So, back to the shorter story. The class I initiated, partly, I admit, to assuage my guilt, to pay dues, to erase the cloud of disappointment I've never forgotten in the students' eyes. It pains me all these years later, since the conditions brewing the clouds' ugly presence remain in place, and the scene may be replicating itself, different office, different university, and victims today. But the class. Let's stick to my first Afro-American literature class that turned out to be a gift from the students to me rather than my offering to them. The class that leads back to Zora Neale Hurston and this folklore collection. At the end of the first trial run of the class, an appreciative student handed me the bluest eye and said, thank you for the course, Professor Whiteman. Isabel Stewart, since she was a sweet, polite, subtle young woman and didn't wish to undercut an expression of gratitude by mixing it with other more complicated motives didn't add, you really must teach this wonderful novel, especially since you saw fit to include only one work by a female writer in your syllabus. The one work was Their Eyes Were Watching God. I had discovered it when I began teaching myself what my formal education had neglected. At the time, African-American writing was dominated by males and framed intellectually by a reductive, apologetic, separate but equal mentality whose major critical project seemed asserting the point we too have written and do write 
and some of our stuff deserves inclusion in the mainstream. By coincidence, the two female writers who, in separate ways, one by her presence, the other by her absence, were part of my first course, would transform African-American literary studies. Toni Morrison, as writer, editor, and Nobel laureate, became point person of a band of awesomely talented women who would precipitate a flip-flop in African-American letters so drastic that women today, for better or worse, dominated as much as men did 30 years ago. Zora Neale Hurston's representation of the folk voice in her anthropological work, autobiography, and fiction expanded the idea of what counts as literature, reframing the relationship between spoken and written verbal art, high versus low culture, affirming folk voices, female voices.